You are catching us on the fourth week in our new series called The Gospel-Centered Life. When I introduced this series, I said our hope and aim for this series is to remind ourselves of the gospel, which is something we can never outgrow in our journey of faith, the need to be reminded of the gospel. Not so much the theoretical or philosophical aspect of the gospel, but rather the everyday practical implications of the gospel. That's what we mean when we talk about being reminded of the gospel. In other words, in light of the good news of Christ, how then should I live my life? So this is a practical and everydayness kind of aspect of the gospel. Why do I need to be reminded of the gospel? Why do you need to be reminded of the gospel? You see, the thing is, we all have a tendency to forget the gospel. Especially when things don't go as I have anticipated them. Especially when I have to face disappointment. The gospel approach is not the most natural thing for me. I tend to wonder. I tend to look elsewhere to fix whatever it is that I'm not happy about. If Paul could confront Peter because he thought his behavior was not in line with the gospel. How much more you and I are in need of being reminded of the gospel. In chapter 2 of the same letter that we've read from, we see a confrontation between these two giants of the New Testament. Because Peter's behavior on what they call table fellowship was inappropriate. Somehow he withdrew from the table fellowship because there were Gentiles there whom he looked down upon because of their ethnicity. And Paul calls him and he tells him, your behavior is not in line with the truth of the gospel. He doesn't say to him, you, you, you lack manners, you lack social manners. No, he says, your behavior is a gospel issue. The same Peter is the person who was used by God to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom, but today he seems to have forgotten that the same Christ who saved him also saves the Gentiles. And so if those giants would need to be reminded, even confronted, how much more you and I need to be reminded? While on the one hand we are seeking to be reminded of the gospel, we are also aware of the fact that there is a culture around us, the worldly culture that is increasingly becoming hostile to the gospel. So how then are we to apply the gospel to the society that is becoming increasingly hostile, the society that is every day seeking to undermine our understanding of the gospel. Anna mentioned um, that the picture of God in the scripture is the father figure. 
I remember listening to an interview by Don Carson as he was leading a team of scholars to put together the NIV Study Bible. How they were confronted in the use of the name Father. So, so God is being elsewhere contested as a father. And all those are an attempt to undermine our understanding of the gospel. How are we going to respond to that culture? So part of our series is to, is to help us develop a biblical world view. I like Tom Wright's definition of worldview. He says, it is the glasses through which we see the world. When our feet are firmly grounded on the gospel, we are able to look and see whatever it is that is different from the gospel. Now, the theme for us tonight, hold both of these themes together. The need to be reminded of the gospel and the reality of the culture in which we are to apply this gospel in. We will see that in a minute. Now, so far in this series, we have firmly established that we are saved, that we are justified. Justified means to be made right, to be brought into a right relationship with God. That we are redeemed and being redeemed only by faith in Christ and not through any righteousness of our own. That's what we have established so far in this series. Surely you would expect that by now if we say we're talking about Gospels because those are the basics of the Gospel that we don't contribute to our salvation. We receive our salvation as a gift. So surely by this time we may, we, we, surely we need to have established those truths. Tonight we move a little bit to something that will demand a little bit of careful study. Something that will demand a little bit of thoughtfulness, a little bit of wrestle in our minds. It's about the law and the gospel. That's what tonight is about. Or to use Tim Keller's language, it's about the law in the gospel. So the question that we are seeking, a couple of questions that we are seeking to answer tonight, I hope you will be thinking about them during the course of this week. And by the way, if you will be thinking about them, you're not the first to think about these questions, and you're not going to be thinking about them for the last time. They are part of our discipleship. The first one is, what is my relationship as a Christian to God's law? Or putting it differently, if we are saved or if we are free from the law, does that mean we don't have to obey the law of God? Paul is big on that theme, free from the law in the letter to Galatians. So if we are free from the law, does that mean I don't have to be bothering myself about the law of God? I don't have an answer. I'm just posing the questions at the moment. 
The third one, if I am saved, justified, if I am redeemed and adopted into God's family and only by Christ's performance and not my own, why should I strive to live a holy life? Why? It was Jerry Bridges who wrote that book, The Pursuit of Holiness, which is something that we are to live for. So tonight is about how are we to understand God's law in light of the gospel? Now, these questions, I'm sure you will agree with me, these questions require careful and thoughtful response. We must be careful to oversimplify them. But rather, we need to wrestle with them with integrity. These questions, I'm not going to be answering for you. I'm not going to be answering them for you tonight. You're going to be continuously wrestle with them. I'm probably giving you tools just to continuously wrestle with them. Here is one of the simple answer, not a comprehensive one, by the help of the New Testament scholar Michael Horton. He says, saving faith is not the enemy of good works, but their own possible source. We never offer up our good works to God for salvation, but extend them to our neighbors for their good. As a result, everyone benefits. God, who needs nothing from us, receives all the glory. Our neighbors receive the gifts, but that God wants to give them through us. And we benefit both, and we benefit both from the gift of others and the joy that our own giving brings. So the works that we do as a result of what Christ has done to us, they are not on their own. They are not on their own, the reason why we have received salvation. But they are a product of the goodness we have received. Because you and I have been the recipients of God's generosity, of God's kindness. Therefore, we will tend to want to be the channel of the same to others. So what Michael Horton is saying here, as we walking on this narrow rope between the law and the gospel, what he's saying, after you and I have been saved by grace, the law shows us how to live in a way that brings glory to God. The law helps and instructs us in righteousness with God. This morning, I tried to illustrate this by saying this. Ask the New Testament believers. We have a very serious temptation because of this grace and the freedom that we have received to almost approach God with casual attitude. To almost view God as our mate, as our body. Because Christ has brought him close to us. Christ is our brother because, because he is the son of God. And therefore, 
because we have responded to Christ, we are also children of God. But if we go to the law, to the Old Testament, we, we see the reality of this God. If you go to Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, as God delivers the Ten Commandments, we are told it was a scary scene. There was smoke everywhere as they stand at the foot of the Mount Sinai. God is sitting on it and speaking to them. They, they asked Moses to remove them far from the presence of God and they pleaded with him that Moses rather let God speak to you and then you speak to us. Be the mediator between us and God. We cannot afford to have God speaking to us directly. And the good news is Jesus is the better and the superior mediator. We will get there in a minute as we speak about how then are we to understand the law. Now, here in this passage, or almost the chapter I've read, Paul gives a full treatment to these questions that I've raised. He gives a full treatment. Paul turns our attention to this young confused, perplexed church of Galatia. Young, confused, and bewildered church. You ask, what happened? You see, some among them in this church, they're struggling with spiritual snobbery. They have a sense of spiritual superiority. They see themselves better than the others. Why? Why would anyone arrive there? That's a very far destination to get to. But other people seem to get there quicker. Anyways, there they were, feeling superior than others spiritually. You know why? Because these were Jewish Christians who had converted to Christianity. And now they come to faith they still want to keep part of Jewish tradition. And so they look at these Gentile Christians who are completely new in this faith thing, and they say to them, what's up with you people? Don't you know the law of Moses? The first five books of the Bible, Torah, the law of God. So, so they, they're feeling a bit superior over them. So surely then, if they feel superior over them, others are feeling inferior. That's what is happening in this church. They are putting over their shoulders this heavy burden. They're saying to them, it's well and good that you are Christians. But you know what, guys? Don't just end there. Take it all the way. Don't only celebrate the fact that you've been brought in. Remember the law of Moses. Remember the inheritance that we have received. Particularly, they are insisting on three laws. The dietary laws, which was the reason why Peter struggled to go and eat with the Gentiles. They're insisting on, on the festival laws 
and they are insisting on the circumcision laws. They're saying if you don't keep at least these three laws, you will not be acceptable to us. And because you are not acceptable to us, you are not going to be acceptable to God. Ouch. It's quite a high standard. Even higher than God's standard. Often that's what happened. That's why Jesus was always in conflict with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because their law were even more higher than God's. And Jesus deliberately went the other way just to provoke their attention. Because they tried to catch him doing or saying something against the law. And Jesus did it exactly. Just to expose the motives of their hearts. He says, you are so good to tell people what to do, but you can't even touch it with your finger. Hypocrites. That was Jesus, not me. So that was the issue here. And I'm afraid this is not an ancient issue. It is a very modern issue. It is not a Galatian issue. It is our issue. Somebody wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians and he said, the church at the moment is going through a Galatian moment. And he highlighted the realities which are similar to the Galatians moment. The church is confused. The church is timid. The church is caught up in compromise to the culture around it. The church wants to give in to the loud voices of the culture, to the hostile society, because you see, we want acceptance. It was John Stewart who said, if the church served God, was faithful, it would suffer more. If the church was faithful, would suffer more. So that it doesn't suffer more, it means the church is compromising. So that's us. It's not only an ancient issue. So the question is for you and I, where do we find our security? Is it from the voices around us or from Christ? Where do we find our identity? Again, we can give the right answers to those questions, but it's often the action that tells the heart, the condition of the heart. The answer, we know the right answer, is Christ. Our identity is in Christ, we say that. But when the rubber hits the tar, we show a different approach. So how Paul is going to respond to this? Well, Paul wants to reestablish these believers. He wants to reassure them He's got some affectionate words to give to them in verses 1 of this chapter, which we didn't read. He says to them, oh, you foolish 
Galatians. The J.B. Philip says, Oh, you dear idiots. He is affectionate to them. You see, you see, he's not, he's not, he's not, he's not, he's not about to give up on them. He actually wants to wake them up. He's actually clapping. He said, wake up. How did you get here? What happened? Why are you even entertaining these questions? He asked them about six questions in the first five verses. And the implication of those questions is, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And he's not expecting an answer from them. He's saying to them, think, remember, go back. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember what Christ has done for you. And he celebrates the achievements of the gospel in this chapter in a very beautiful way. I need to rush. He tells them that you, you started very well in your journey. You, your journey started in the spirit. And he goes on and goes on. Again, I was thinking about these words that Paul used to this church. I wonder what he would say when he comes to us. I have a feeling he would use the same words. Oh, foolish you. I'm not going to use the other one. But I bet he would. Who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? As he sees us trying to appease the culture, as he watches us conforming to the world, as he sees us wrestling with the voices, he tells them that the gospel has been plainly and clearly preached to you. Why are you confused? He says to them, you've received the Spirit. You have begun by the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you've heard? And the implication is, no, you have not received the Spirit because you've observed the law. You've, you've received the Spirit because you've put faith in Christ Jesus. So what's the issue? What's the confusion about? So what can we learn from Paul's response to this church other than him being so affectionate to them? Well, the first thing we learn is that Paul responds to their confusion and their wondering. Firstly, by wanting to make them know what the law can and can't do. He wants them to understand why the law was given. And he wants them to understand the limitations of the law. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified. So the law cannot justify us. The law cannot bring us to a right relationship with God. The law was added, verses 19, for our transgressions until Christ came. The law did not come to tell us 
about salvation, but about our sin. So the main purpose of the law is to show us our problem, that we are lawbreakers, and we are unable to be perfect law keepers. That's the main purpose of the law. And so Paul is saying, nothing is needed in addition to the gospel to bring us into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. Nothing is needed. In verses 25 of our chapter, it says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the Lord. Now that faith has come. In other words, now that the New Testament covenant has come, now that the church has been born, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The role of the supervisor is to direct and guide. But we are no longer in that state. So God's people in the Old Testament were put right with God through promise, not through law. <coughs> and so Paul wants to remind them of this great promise they have. He wants to secure them that you are the children of the promise. You've received what you've received by the promise. And as I conclude, I just want to highlight two points as a takeaway from us. Paul wants to remind them the marks of the true gospel. He mentions a couple of them. One, he says, is the spirit within you. Therefore, if you have the spirit within you, you are no longer in need of the law. The law was given for the childhood of the people of God. Now they are mature believers. They have the Holy Spirit within them. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will leave you with the spirit who will be in you and will be with you. He will teach you everything, and he will remind you everything I have taught you. So one of the marks of the true gospel, one of the marks that you have received faith, you've received Jesus, is the spirit in you. Now that's another subject for another day because of our understanding of the Holy Spirit. But for now, for tonight, let's celebrate the fact that if you are a child of God, you have the Spirit in you. Another mark Paul highlights in this chapter of the true gospel, you're not going to like it, it's suffering. It's suffering. I'm not saying here, as we leave tonight, go and fix your garage and find a way to hit your nail with it. 
so that you get a bit of suffering or do something wrong. I was a recipient recently of, a, of, a, of an anger from a gentleman who was just, he had it. I don't know where he took it from. There was a joke that said, uh, somebody was asking the EFF, of course this is a joke, he said, when we join your party, do we bring our anger with you or do you supply it? I'm not sure where he got that guy. Uh, he, he really was angry. Typical of our, of our country, he was assuming everything about me and he was letting it out. But, but that's not what I'm saying here. Let's not go out and look for those kind of sufferings because they will come anyway. Whether you find them or not, they are part of our faith. If you have put your faith in Christ Jesus, you will experience opposition. You will experience something of suffering. And then Paul ends this great chapter with Abraham's blessing. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor and female. If you are all in all in all one in Christ Jesus, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and as according to the promises. In that little paragraph, Paul celebrates the gospel achievement. He tells us of three barriers that were broken by Christ in the gospel. The national barrier. You are no longer Jew nor Gentiles. You are one. He talks about social barriers that divide us from one another. Slave or free, male or female. He says that one too has been broken. He talks about a spiritual barrier. He says you now belong to Christ and you are an heir of Abraham. What does that mean to be an heir of Abraham? It means lift your head high. You are part of the promise of God. Back in Genesis 12. The promise was given first, then the law later. You belong to the promise. You lift your head high. You have no reason to be inferior spiritually. He brings the Gentiles flat on the ground, and he lifts, sorry, he brings the Jews on the level ground, and he lifts the Gentiles. He says, you guys are the same. You belong to Christ. That's you and I. And when we partake on those elements, which you will make your way to in a few minutes, we celebrate what Christ has done for us, for bringing us to be part of Abraham's blessing.